chapter 7. We're going to conclude with lunch today. And they're very wise in putting my last session before lunch because uh, Brother John said to me, he said, now, as the Spirit leads, you know, go as long as you want. But they know Kaisers aren't in the habit of being late for a meal. So uh, there's sort of built-in safeguards here. Uh, usually I preach till a young person falls out the window. Uh, but just kidding, that's Acts 20. But anyway, uh, we'll try to get done in good time for our meal. Amos chapter 7, let's look to the Lord again first. Father, we are so grateful, even in a book that tells us about thy holy judgment, which is a good thing, because if sin was left unchecked, and if this world was just left to take its course, what an awful hell on earth it would be. It would be absolutely odious and horrible in every respect. And yet thou, in the beauty of thy holiness, will judge it. But at the same time, Father, we rejoice that with thy judgment thou hast remembered mercy and that there's the love and grace of God that's on display in this book. So help us to bring that out and bring all thy truth out to preach the whole counsel of God. We pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amos chapter 7. So you see how quickly we've gotten to the last third of the book. We're not going to deal with chapter 9 today. Lord willing, that's tomorrow. But you'll see Amos is very short, and you can read through it at a sitting quite easily. I don't know how long it takes you. It depends on how fast you read, I suppose. But it's one of those great books. You can read it over and over, and it starts to get in your mind, and you start seeing connections and thinking about different things through the book. So it's wonderful to go over God's word that way. Amos chapter 7, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me. Now, we've had different beginnings. We heard three chapters, three, four, and five, where the Lord was saying, hear the word of the Lord. And then we had a chapter about woe that was in the, the meter, let's say, of a lamentation or a funeral dirge. And now, the next two chapters, we're going to see things. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop, indeed, It was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire. And it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, Cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. I will just stop there for a moment and consider what it's saying. This is the beautiful truth of intercession. Intercession is when you're praying to God for someone else. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Among the many things he does for us, he's described as our great high priest in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he ever liveth to make intercession for us. So when you think of it, the Lord who Psalm 121 tells us neither slumbers nor sleeps is praying for us at all times. Uh, Like he said to Peter in Luke 22, 
Peter, Satan hath, he said actually to the, all the disciples, Satan hath desired to have you, plural, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that's you singular, Peter, that your faith fail not. And when you are restored, strengthen your brethren. So think of it, Peter was about to commit perhaps the gravest sins of his entire life. He was going to deny he knew the Lord Jesus three times. And yet the Lord, each time he predicts that in the Gospels, the next thing he says gives hope. The next thing he says is encouraging. And in Luke 22, how does Peter know his fall isn't irrevocable? How does he know there's a way back? How does he know it's not going to be the end for him? He knows because the Lord says, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, in the grand scheme, that's what the Lord is doing for every true believer, for all of his church. The Lord Jesus is praying for us. And we are going to, as a hymn writer says, and I hope by thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. We are going to safely arrive at home. We are going to be with the Lord. And is it so? I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace which he for me as one father of glory, thought beyond all thought in glory to thine own blessed likeness brought, as Mr. Darby's wonderful hymn says it. And here we get this doctrine of intercession where Amos switches from being preacher to prayer, where he is going from indicting the nation in their sin to interceding for the nation. He's praying for them. Now, we should always remember that. You know, I've had uh, Christian friends before, and maybe I've fallen into this myself sometimes, that they get so taken up with preaching the wrath of God and preaching about people's sin and preaching about what's wrong with the world. And as we've seen in Amos, there's very much a place for that. In fact, we're living in an age when people don't want to hear that, when people want to hear smooth words. And we're going to find out it was basically the same thing that they said to Amos. There's a place for preaching wrath. We need to do it. We need to talk about sin. We need to preach about hell. That's the other side of the good news. Because if I'm on the Titanic enjoying some shuffleboard or listening to the band play, I'm having a good time. I don't care till somebody kicks a chunk of ice over at me on the deck and says, hey, we just hit an iceberg. The ship's going down. I don't think I need the lifeboat until I realize that the ship is in imminent peril, right? It's the same with our souls. That when we realize how grave sin is and that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we need a savior, that that leads us to the Lord to seek salvation, that the goodness of God leads us to repentance, as Romans 2, 4 says. But the flip side is that in all that preaching about wrath and even preaching salvation, we also need to pray for the lost. We also need to pray for the people we're preaching to. We also need to pray that they might turn to the Lord while he may be found. That the Spirit of God would convict them of their sin and need, and their eyes would be open to what the Scripture is saying to them. You know, because it's not all on us. I'm so grateful for that. Because I've been in many situations, either street preaching, or sometimes at universities, or sometimes in other public forums, and my audience isn't like this audience. This audience is majority professing Christian. Maybe everybody here would say they're a Christian. Maybe everybody here is born again. I can't see your heart. The Lord knoweth them that are his. But in any case, you know, I, I feel pretty good in front of this audience. You're not going to throw vegetables or toss a pizza at me even. That's a 
foreshadowing, they call that in literary terms. Uh, that's what we're having for lunch, I'm told. But anyway, you're not going to attack me, okay? You're not like the crowd Stephen spoke to in Acts 7, where they stop their ears and they run at him and drag him out of the city and stone him to death. You're not that kind of a crowd. I'm not in fear, but I've been in places where I was a little bit more daunted, where I did feel like maybe somebody might jump me here. I have had friends that while street preaching, a biker lit my friend's Bible on fire. I have had other friends that have been punched or had things dumped on them. I've had things thrown at me uh, sometimes in years past when I was out doing open air evangelism in different parts of the world. So there can be dangerous situations, right? And we realize that. But we shouldn't let it embitter us against the lost because we were just like them once upon a time. Whatever our background, whatever our sins were, were uh, whatever our sins entailed, let's say, whatever variety of sin was our thing, uh, it still is the fact that the same blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was required to save us. We needed a savior as much as anybody else. And as cruel and as malevolent and as bitter people may appear who don't know the Lord Jesus, doesn't make what they're doing right, but we can understand why they are the way they are. It's because they don't know the Lord, because their hearts haven't been renewed. They don't have the transforming power of the Spirit of God regenerating them. They're not new creatures in Christ Jesus. We want them to be. And the wonderful thing is there's no one so bad. There's no one so far gone that if they turn to the Lord and cry out to him, he can't save them. The Lord is able. The Lord can do it And the Lord has filled his church and filled church history with such cases. And he did so in Israel. So it's wonderful to see the preacher here at a very key moment when he's talking about the locusts eating up the late crop. So there's no fallback at this point. There's no harvest to come. It's the end. And they've come. Now now famine's going to come. And so he says, oh, Lord God. Now notice that reverent appreciation of who the Lord is. Forgive, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand. We don't want to pray for people's destruction. We're not called to imprecation, to cursing others. I realize that in accurately arguing for the attitudes and opinions of men through the ages, and when under duress, certain believers have cried out to God to judge. And in a sense, we want the Lord to eventually judge sin and evil. But when we talk about sinners, we're not praying for their destruction, and particularly Israel. The psalmist would enjoy us, enjoin us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Now, the last chapter told us that Jacob is proud. Jacob thinks he's big stuff, right? He's big noise. He's very important. Like the United States. I mean, didn't that great apostle Lee Greenwood sing... And I'm proud to be an American. And we're all like tearing up. And yes, we're the greatest nation. And when we defeated Russia in the Olympics in hockey, USA, 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 and all that kind of thing, you know, or you hear God bless America at Yankee Stadium, even though it's an immigrant Irishman, Ronan Tynan singing it, you still kind of get choked up. And I'll throw O Canada in here somewhere for you, brother. Now, you should know, my kids knew the lyrics to O Canada before they knew the national anthem. This is what comes of 
homeschooling and also being itinerant workers, that at Galilee Bible Camp, they were celebrating the great anniversary of the founding of Canada. So we had to sing O Canada every day. So my kids came home singing O Canada and they didn't know the Star Spangled Banner. So I'm confessing my faults, but uh, we love we love Canada and our many friends up there and we're looking forward to getting back there someday when the Lord opens the door. But here, Amos says the opposite. It's not because Jacob is so great. It's not because of all of Israel's attainment. Because after all, way back in Deuteronomy 7, God told them, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest and mightiest of nations or because you were more righteous than any other nation. I set my love upon you. And you know, he's saying here, don't save them because they deserve it. But if you let this calamity come upon them, Lord, they're so small, they might just be wiped out. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Now, does the Lord change his mind? Well, not really in the full sense of that term. The Lord knows what he's going to do. The Lord knows the end from the beginning, doesn't he? But in terms we can wrap our minds around, God says, when you pray to me and ask me for something according to my will, something that I want and have determined to do anyway, I'm going to answer that prayer 100% of the time. Isn't that wonderful? that God invites us into the process and says, yes, intercede for the lost. Pray for Israel. Because it's my plan not to destroy Israel, full stop, not to utterly wipe them out. Eventually, I'm going to restore a remnant of Israel. It's way in the future. It's millennia ahead from Amos' day, but I'm going to do it. So God takes Amos' prayer and he rounds it off, you know, to what God has determined to do. And he brings Amos into the very heart of God. Amos's heart and mind in some mysterious way that we can't fully fathom come into agreement with God. So can I pray for people to be saved? Absolutely. Can I pray for anybody to be saved? Absolutely. Any kind of person, any kind of demographic, I can pray for them because the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He wants all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He's not willing that they perish. The Bible tells us he wants them to be saved. Now, he goes on to say, again, when the Lord calls for fire, again, I prayed, O Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand. He's asking for a tempering of the judgment for mercy, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Now imagine that. When people cry out to the Lord for mercy, the Lord responds. Even the wicked nation of Assyria, their capital Nineveh, that Jonah the prophet was sent to. And he preached, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be destroyed. And that city repented and called on God. And what did God do? He spared it. It says he relented of the judgment he would bring upon them. Jonah wasn't too happy about that, but we can be very happy about it. You think of the Lord Jesus crying over Jerusalem the last time when he went up to that city prior to Calvary. The end of Matthew 23, for example. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those who are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as a mother hen gathers her chicks? But ye would not. Wasn't that the Lord didn't want to save them. He wanted to, but they wouldn't have it. And then the Lord goes on to say that you will not 
see me again until you say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting a messianic psalm, the 118th, that talks about the Lord's second coming to Israel to save that remnant that I've spoken about. And so the Lord is going to bring about his purposes, but it doesn't mean that the people who rejected him in his day are going to be saved. No, they've made their decision, sadly. Now, then verse 7, he shows him something else. He showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand, the ancient equivalent of a tape measure. You can get a vision of the Lord doing this in Zechariah 2, that um, an angelic being comes sent by the Lord to measure Jerusalem. Why? Because God's got a big building program going on. Jerusalem, which at that time in Zechariah's day was a remnant, a small group that had come back from the Babylonian captivity. They were really small, just barely 50,000 of them came back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Josedek. They come back and they're so small. And God says, look, Jerusalem is going to be inhabited like a town without walls for the multitude of cattle and people therein. So God's got a big building program for the future. And that would be, will be literally fulfilled in the millennium. But here it's a bit different. God's coming to judge them. He's coming to measure them for judgment. Behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I'll not pass by them anymore. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Now, later, similar accusations were going to be made against Jeremiah. And later still, accusations like this against the blessed Lord Jesus Christ himself. And still later, accusations against Paul. This is a seditious person. This is a treasonous person. This is a tactic love that Satan loves to use, that he impugns the patriotism of God's people. He says that we don't love the countries where we live in and where God has put us. And so here Amaziah, this priest of the false cult there at Bethel, he's tattling on Amos. He's reporting against him in in the midst of the house of Israel. All Amos is doing is preaching the truth, by the way. For thus has Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their land. Well, that indeed was a fair summary of Amos's message here. And Amaziah said to Amos, verse 12, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it's the royal residence. Now that is laid in with sarcasm. He's saying, go back to Judah where you come from. Go get a job as a prophet down there. Go find a nice church to preach to down in Judah. We don't want to hear it. Don't preach that stuff up here anymore. And he's kind of inferring that Amos is in it for the money, that he's just a hireling. But look at how Amos responds in chapter 7, verse 14. I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Hence all the agricultural terminology in this book. Verse 15, Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. 
Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. And Amos is basically saying, you know, it wasn't like in the eighth grade, I woke up one morning and I went to the guidance counselor at school and I said, now, can you give me one of those career aptitude tests? What, what do you think I'd be good at? It wasn't like dad gave me a coupon one day for a course on computer programming and gaming and suddenly I realized I was meant to be an IT professional. Didn't happen that way to me, says Amos. I didn't say, you know, I think a good, safe career, great benefits, they're out of this world, is to be a prophet. No, I was a farmer, basically. I was a sheep breeder. I took care of sycamore trees. And the Lord called me to preach. Now, that's very important. Because if your calling to preach the word of God originates from man, well, man can shut your mouth. If it's that, this is the idea of man. We need a good public speaker. You're a good communicator. We need somebody over here. You're a warm body. We put you in place. Then fine. (laughs) It may be when the going gets tough, you say, well, maybe I'll try a different career. But if you're like Paul, who says, I'm an apostle of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in Galatians 1, I'm not an apostle from man. So man didn't come up with the idea. This wasn't a human idea. We need another apostle. Let's, let's find Saul of Tarsus and recruit him. Nor through man. It wasn't by human ordination. But he said, through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the origination of his apostleship. And that's why he would say, woe be me if I preach not the gospel. I can't stop preaching. Even though they tell me to stop, even though they say, I'll kill you if you don't stop, if I must die, I'll die. But I must be faithful to the calling of God. And whatever God gifts you with, whatever God calls you to do, if it's from the Lord, you've got to obey that. You can't let men stop you from doing it. No, judgment was going to come upon Amaziah in a very personal way, as Amos recounts there. But then chapter 8, it starts out with another thing that the Lord showed him. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. So again, this is something at the end of the harvest. We think about uh, in Ezekiel, it talks about the harvest being passed and we are not saved. He said, what do you see, Amos? I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I'll not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. So the worship and praise music, it's being turned into the blues. It's being turned into sad music, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They'll be thrown out in silence. Again, not reverent funerals. Just so many dead, so much destruction. They won't even be able to sing or pray over them. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying... When will the new moon be passed that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. Now, do you see what they're doing? 
They are very religious, as we've learned from previous chapters. They offer the sacrifices. They pray. They sing. They observe feasts. They seem like they're very sanctimonious and very pious. But when it comes down to it, they want the Sabbath to be over so they can go back to business. And not just the business of making money honestly, corruption, cheating people, taking the weights and measures, which the Lord says to have a false weight and measure. In Proverbs, he says it more than once. It's an abomination to the Lord. And that's exactly what they want to do, making the ephah small, the amount you get small, and the shekel, the amount you pay, large, falsifying the scales by deceit. And the exploitation of the poor, again, Because they don't have their doctrine of God right, they're not right with the Lord. They're not going to treat people well either. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of you shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. Now the Nile in antiquity would flood every year. This is before the High Aswan Dam and some of the other dams were built. It would flood every year. The wrath of God is going to come up like a flood, is the picture here. And again, it's very sad that he says, I'm not going to forget any of your works. You know what God says in the New Covenant to Israel in Jeremiah 31? And it is applied to the church in the New Testament. That he says, your sins and iniquities... I will remember no more. Now that's a wonderful blessing, isn't it? That the omniscient God who knows every sin we've ever committed because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the sacrifice he offered on the cross, dying for us and rising again for our justification, as Romans 4.25 says, the Lord says your sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. They'll never be brought up against you. Now, Samuel Whitlock Gandhi wrote in one of his hymns, I hear the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Isn't that wonderful? That he looks at a believer and what does he say about us? You're in Christ. You're accepted in the beloved. You're clean in my sight. Again, practically in time and space, I know sanctification is progressive, but there's a sense in which it's also positional. That God already sees us, already seated in the heavenlies, Ephesians says. That we're described as saints, holy ones, or set apart ones in Christ. That the Lord isn't going to bring up our sin against us in regard to our eternal state. That's settled long ago at the cross. But if you don't know the Lord, it's different. The Lord says, I'm not going to forget them. They're going to be held against you. And the books will be opened and men will be judged out of those books, says Revelation 20, at the great white throne. Now, verse 9 of chapter 8 goes on to say, It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, I'll make the sun go down at noon, I'll darken the earth in broad daylight. And when I think about that powerful image of judgment, how scary that must be, and how Revelation talks about those type of astronomical disturbances in the heavens, And yet, this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ experienced on the cross, isn't it? That from noon till three o'clock, the Lord hung on that cross in complete darkness, being judged for our sin, and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
He goes on to say, verse 10, I'll turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I'll bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. All the signs of mourning, in other words. I'll make it like mourning for an only son and it's end like a bitter day. Now again, Zechariah 12 pictures the day when Israel turns back to the Lord and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. So you can mourn for the judgment that comes upon your sin. You can be sorry that you didn't get away with it, that in the end, God's wrath catches up with you. Or you can be sorry for what the Lord had to suffer to save you. And the latter is a far different experience, isn't it? Because it is the opening to endless day. It is the opening to eternal life through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God. I'll send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water. Now, we've heard about those things earlier, Namus. But here the famine is, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And when you read about places in our world today where the Bible is so rare, and once in a while you can see videos. You can see them on YouTube. Sometimes new tribes, I guess they're called Ethnos 360 now, they'll put up a video of one of their translators, or Wycliffe, I think, does the same thing, where the translators have worked for years to bring a portion of the Word of God into the vernacular of the people, into their own language. And you see these people rejoicing, because now we have something of the Word of God. You realize in the English-speaking world in the 1500s, there were elderly women and men, in some cases, burned at the stake. What was their crime? They had a copy of the Tyndale New Testament. Yes, the New Testament. Now, any one of us can get it on our smartphone, as my children have shown me, in pidgin English, if we so desire. And in 20 or 30 other English translations, you know, and other languages as well. There's so many websites where we can access the scripture. Uh, Probably every one of us has multiple Bibles in our homes. I dare say maybe every public library in America has the Bible. We have it. It's ubiquitous. And yet people are turning away from it today. And what a famine there is. What paucity, spiritually speaking, when people turn from the word of the Lord. They're going to want to hear the words when that judgment comes, but it's going to be too late for them. They've already decided. When the word was spoken, they didn't want to hear it. They'll wander from sea to sea, verse 12 says, and from north to east, they'll run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Now, many times people have that Amaziah-like attitude, the priest we read about in the previous chapter. They said, stop preaching. Get out of here. We don't want to hear it. Many people probably, when the church is raptured, will say, good riddance. I don't care where they went. Spontaneous combustion on a mass scale, UFOs, doesn't matter to me. Good riddance to bad rubbish. We're rid of those pesky Christians. They were always swimming against the flow. We don't want to hear from them anymore. We don't have to hear their preaching anymore, hear about born again, and hear about sins, and hear about all that stuff. We're glad that message is gone. But there's something more serious than hearing the Lord pronounce wrath. It's when the Lord has stopped speaking to you. And you can see that in the life of the first king of Israel, Saul, son of Kish, that there comes a point in 1 Samuel where God is no longer speaking to him because he's 
turned from the Lord so many times. The Lord has spoken to him and spoken to him and he's rejected the word of the Lord till finally he goes and finds a witch, finds a necromancer. He dabbles in the occult. And for probably the one and only time in history, God providentially uses that and sends Samuel to give him a word, but it's not a good word. It's the word that his day of judgment has come. The next day he's going to be in eternity. Solemn, isn't it? When God isn't speaking to people anymore. Far better to heed the word. Far better to be like the psalmist who said, I love thy word, O Lord. Far better to live upon it and feed upon it like the living bread that it is. Because it's how the Lord Jesus reveals himself to us. Verse 13 says, In that day the fair virgins and strong young men shall faint from thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Now before in the previous message, I mentioned from Hamat to the Sea of the Arabah, that's from the north to the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, as I understand it, the ten tribe kingdom. But Dan to Beersheba is used over and over in the Bible to talk about from the very north of the land to the south of the land. And basically he's saying, you know, you can go over the whole country and there's one future for those who follow a false gospel. One future for those who follow false gods. It's judgment. There's no hope in that way. And so those who swear by that sin, they're going to fall and never rise again. But there's a different option. And chapter 9 presents that different option. It's to turn to the Lord while he may be found. It's to follow the true and living God. We'd say it this way today. It's to believe the gospel, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might be saved. That's the other option. And chapter 9 is going to bring the book to a resounding and happy close with the joyous anticipation of the restoration that God's going to bring to Israel. And it's a restoration that even today has its application to us in the church age. So tune in next time. (laughs) You come tomorrow, we'll talk about chapter 9, Lord willing, if the Lord hasn't come yet. And we'll think about our God's grace, that even when all seems doom and gloom, all seems lost and that it can't get any worse, the Lord comes in and restores. Because that's how the Lord is. He's a Savior. Thank you for coming. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the Word of God, thankful for the prevalence of it in our land still, and we realize that it's speaking to men and women, boys and girls, that even today people are getting saved. We're thankful for that. There may not be as many as we would like, and we're sure even more so that thou are saddened by man's unbelief and refusal to repent and believe, by the obdurate, stubborn sinfulness of men. But Father, we're thankful for thy grace. We're thankful for thy promises that are yea and amen. And that will never be abrogated because the word of God will not pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away, but thy word will never pass away. So we thank thee forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. We pray we'd take deep comfort in it, that we'd read it and love it and live it in the power of thy spirit. We do pray for our fellowship as we gather together over food. We thank thee for friendships in Christ. We thank thee that we can encourage one another, that we can use our gifts to build one another up, and we pray it would be so. We thank thee for the food we're about to have. 
It is from thy hand. We say, give us this day our daily bread. And thou, O Father, hast abundantly provided. We give thee thanks in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen.